This week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we dig even further into St. Luke's Gospel with Written in Heaven, Blessed Eyes and Ears, Good Samaritan, One Thing Necessary, and The Lord's Prayer. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendures.org or your favorite podcast provider. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, heaven and The Great Service Creed, I believe in one God by William Byrd, the Talus Scholars, and Peter Phillips. The Nicene Creed is spoken by many, perhaps even the vast majority of Christians on a weekly basis, if not more often. Where did it come from? Why do we have creeds in the first place? And for Lutherans, the Nicene Creed isn't just a universal creed, an ecumenical creed. It is a big part of our public confession. Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc. Live on this Monday afternoon, January the 23rd. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. We'll begin a series, a weekly series, with Pastor Will Whedon on the Nicene Creed. Then we'll be spending some time with Dr. Bill Weinrich looking at John chapter 10, the first 21 verses. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Pastor Will Whedon is assistant pastor at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Hamill, Illinois, formerly served as director of worship for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. He's author of the book, Celebrating the Saints, Thank, Praise, Serve, and Obey, and See My Savior's Hands. And he hosts the daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study produced by Lutheran Public Radio called The Word of the Lord Endures Forever. Will, welcome back. Hey, thank you, Todd. A joy to be with you. The first question that always comes up is, why creeds? And sometimes without any acrimony, just we have the Bible, why do we need creeds? Right. I mean, it's, it's a fair question, right? When we have a Bible that is inspired and infallible and inerrant, what more could we want, right? I mean, we get why people would would raise the question about why creeds. But remember the word creed itself just comes from the opening word of both the Nicene and the Apostles' credo, I believe. And so creeds arose in part to express how the church has correctly understood the word of God, which we have in the Bible. And to kind of help us get this, 19th century Lutheran theologian, Charles Porterfield Krauth, he once said, can you imagine talking to an astronomer and you ask him to explain his theory of the movement of the stars? And he responded to that with, well, the stars themselves were his confession. Well, what has he told you? absolutely nothing about what he actually believed. We were inquiring after the way he explained the movement of the heavenly bodies, maybe their origins, not if there were heavenly bodies. So the person who tells us that the Bible is their creed hasn't actually told us anything at all about what they believe the Bible says. It's absolutely true that the Bible norms the church's creeds, but these summaries of faith tell us precisely what the church believes the Bible is saying. They provide a succinct summary, which is why the Greeks called them symbols. They're the symbol of the faith. That means, you know, a way to summarize the faith that you could sort of just put the whole Christian faith in your pocket with the words of, of the creed. Now, you mentioned, Todd, 
the Lutheran confessions actually begin, not with the Augsburg Confession, but with what it calls the three ecumenical, which means worldwide, creeds. And then we have the three listed, the Apostles, the Nicene, and then the Athanasian. And what's kind of funny about beginning that way and and the titles is that every last one of the titles is wrong because truly the three creeds are not ecumenical in that sense. The Eastern Church has never accepted or used the Apostles' Creed or the Athanasian Creed, only the Nicene. And so in that sense, only the Nicene Creed is kind of like a universal or near-to-universal Christian creed. And let's think about each of the other names, too. The Apostles is called that, we like to say nowadays, because it contains the Apostles' doctrine. But there was a tradition early on that the Apostles themselves had each contributed one line to the creed, so it was thought of as being a summary of their teaching. It is a summary of the teaching of the Apostles, and it's really different from the Nicene Creed, right? I think if you asked nine out of ten Lutherans, what's your favorite creed? What are they going to say? Well, they're probably going to say the Apostles. The Apostles. And I don't think it's just because it's short. I think it's because it jives with the way Western Christians think. The, the, The difference between liturgy and East and West is really profound. And in the West, man, everything is streamlined. One thing follows another, and there's like no repetition. The the, the Roman liturgy, which is what Lutherans have, we have a a, a liturgy that came to us through the Church of Rome. It just tends to be very succinct without repetition. It just states one thing, then the next, and moves on. Wow, in the East, (laughs) you've got these spinning repetitions that go on and on and on and on. We'll see this in the Nicene Creed as we work through it. It is clearly a product of the Eastern Church, and it has its home inside of uh, that kind of repetitious liturgy. Same thing then, the Athanasian Creed was never really, let's just say it bluntly, it's not really a creed per se. It was like a, a song, a canticle that was taught, especially so that pastors would know how to make their sermons orthodox and right on regarding the person and work of Christ and the doctrine of the Trinity. It basically gives you a set of rules that says, don't say this, do say this when you're talking about either of these great mysteries. And it became, again, strictly a Western thing. It was it was sung in, uh, I think, prime right up until the 1960s when Rome finally dumped it. I really think that in common liturgical use, Lutherans might be the last holdout for the the reciting and using of the Athanasian Creed at least once a year on Trinity Sunday. And we should add, Athanasius never laid eyes on it. It's about a century or so, a century and a half beyond him, but it certainly contains the doctrine that he was fighting for, which we'll be talking a lot about as we get into uh, the history of the Nicene Creed itself. That's what I wanted to go to next, because it's a longer history than the name suggests. The name suggests uh, Council of Nicaea, what, 325, mm-hmm. at the end of the day or at the end of the council, here's the creed. But it's it's more complex both before and after that, isn't it? Yeah, because clearly what happened at Nicaea was, uh, you know, the different churches and uh, bishops came together with creeds of their own, their, their own baptism. The creeds all grow out of the liturgy of baptism, right? This is why they have three parts, because it's all about in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, right? So 
as the they came together in Nicaea, they might have had their local baptismal creeds. But if one was proffered and another, they were checking them. You know, how are we going to deal with these Arians, these people who are saying that Jesus Himself is not really fully God? He is God in some secondary and derivative sense, not God in the sense of being of one being with His Father. How are we going to confess this? And they really did bonk their heads against the wall, trying to piece out what they could do in this till that nice little deacon from down there in, uh, in, in Alexandria, St. Athanasius, came up and said, you know, we could hijack a word that had heretical overtones originally. And he says, we could take this word and use it to craft this idea and it would not let an Arian sneak through. An Arian will not confess that the son is homoousios, of the same essence, being substance as the Father. He will not do it. So if we put this word into the creed, then we've got a lock on orthodoxy that will not allow any slippage in the direction of the Arians. And by the way, the Arians today are what we would know as the Jehovah Witness, right? I mean, they've got that same kind of idea about Jesus Christ. And so this is what they finally decided to do. They took and reworked the creeds that they had gathered together there, and they promulgated what basically we have as the Nicene Creed. There were some slight differences from what we have today. God of God, I think, is uh, is from the Latin rather than from the, the original Greek. And what's most significant, though, and this is what you were pointing to, I think, at the beginning, the creed just stops with, and in the Holy Spirit, you know, and then it anathematizes anybody who won't say this creed, right? If you disagree with all this stuff, you are not the Christian. This is the faith. And there's a reason why they stopped there. It's not because they didn't think confessing the Holy Spirit was worth their time. It's because they were responding to the relationship between the Father and the Son in particular, right? Right. The big fight over the Holy Spirit with the Panoimato Machians had not yet arisen. And so that's on the horizon. And that's how the creed finally gets, as we would say, completed. Now, that was at 381 in Constantinople, the first council of Constantinople presided over by St. Gregory Nazianzus one of the Cappadocian fathers, and they will basically, their doctrine of the Trinity is what is encapsulated in the Nicene Creed with all the peculiarities of the way they as Eastern Christians would confess the Trinity. We'll, we'll get to that as we, we work our way through it. But that council then had the opportunity to just open up the third article of the Creed and say, well, if we're confessing the Holy Spirit, we need to confess fully that he is himself Lord and God, that he's worshiped with the Father and the Son, and that we we need to talk about what the place of his, the arena of his work, both in the church and in the resurrection of the dead and in the life of the world to come. So they've expanded the Creed to the form that we now have it, that when we confess it, with the exception of uh, a little phrase, which is inserted later in the creed, filioque, and from the whole, and, and from the son, just like he proceeds from the father, he proceeds from the son also. That was contested, of course. We'll deal with all of that when we get to the third article. But uh, for right now, what matters is that the creed basically takes its form in 381. And at the Council of Chalcedon in 451, this is the creed which is affirmed and held to. And so its official name really is the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed 
it's easier just to say the Nicene Creed and realize it's the work of at least the two councils and with the intervening controversy about the deity of the Holy Spirit, just as earlier we had the controversy about the deity of the eternal Son. So maybe that sets off flags for people. They're like, oh, so the the creeds really were formed to confess the Trinity, right? And the Trinity is not in the Bible. Well, as soon as somebody says that, you want to ask, have you actually read the Bible? Because the word Trinity is not in the Bible, but certainly the teaching of the Holy Trinity is present at the baptism of Jesus. You have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit happening right there all together with the water at the command of Jesus to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Not names, name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then you start paying attention to how Trinity shows up, like in the Pauline epistles. It is all over the place. Usually uh, it's implicit. He doesn't ever say the first person is the Father, the second person is the Son, the third person is the Holy Spirit. In fact, St. Basil the Great said when God revealed the Trinity, he didn't reveal the numbers, meaning he didn't reveal first, second, third person. That's just what we've conveniently lumped together to make a shorthand way of speaking. But in the New Testament, you'll see the Trinity shows up all over the place, but in a variety of orderings. Pastor Will Whedon is our guest. We're beginning a weekly series with him on the Nicene Creed on the other side of the break. Although we say it together, we don't use the proper pronoun for speaking together, we believe. We say, I believe. Is that something new? The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for January would make a great gift for your pastor. It's the new Concordia Commentary on John, chapter 7, verse 2, to chapter 12, verse 50. This latest Concordia Commentary is written by Issues Etc. regular guest, Dr. Bill Weinrich. Learn more about our January Book of the Month at issuesetc.org or by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040. The new Concordia Commentary on John 7, 2 to 1250. This fall in creation is bested by tornado, hurricane, flood, pandemic, and more. LCMS Disaster Response helps our congregations, their pastors, and other church workers to reach out to their members and neighbors with mercy, which flows from Christ's altar. We offer quality volunteer training, help for congregational readiness and response, and disaster grant funding. To learn more, visit lcms.org disaster. That's lcms.org disaster. Christological, creedal, confessional. You're listening to Issues Etc. Peace Evangelical Lutheran Church of Chehalis, Washington. Biblical, historic Christianity. Whose source is scripture, whose heart is the gospel. If you're in southwest Washington, join us for the divine service. You will receive Jesus, crucified and risen again for the forgiveness of your sins. We promise. For more information, call us at 360-748-4108. Is your child struggling at school? Are you thinking about homeschooling? Would you like help knowing what to teach and how to teach it? The Simply Classical Curriculum from Memoria Press provides an enriching, step-by-step classical Christian education for students who have autism, learning or behavioral difficulties, ADHD, and more. You'll find everything you need, including daily lesson plans to guide your way. Learn more at simplyclassical.com. Use LPR23 to save on your order. 
simplyclassical.com. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're beginning a weekly series on the Nicene Creed with Pastor Will Whedon of The Word of the Lord Endures Forever. That's a daily 50-minute verse-by-verse Bible study produced by Lutheran Public Radio. Pastor Whedon is leading a study this week on Woe to Unrepentant Cities, The Return of the 72, Jesus Rejoices at the Father's Will, The Parable of the Good Samaritan, and Mary and Martha in Luke chapters 10 and 11. Listen at your convenience at thewordendures.org, the LPR mobile app, or your favorite podcast provider. The Word of the Lord Endures Forever with Pastor Will Whedon. Will, let's uh, discuss a little bit the pronouns here Hmm. with which we begin. We say commonly, I believe. Has it always been so? Yeah, at Nicaea and then at Constantinople, as it was promulgated by the council, it's a we, uh, we believe, but... It's never been used that way in the church's liturgy. We should just note that it was first introduced into the church's liturgy by Monophysites who were trying to prove that they were actually sticking with the old faith and that the new Council of Chalcedon had actually departed from the old faith. And so they were confessing the old faith just to show them we're sticking with what we did in 381. The Orthodox weren't about to let that happen, right? Orthodox Christians said, well, wait a minute. (laughs) That's our confession of the faith. We're going to confess it too. And so it enters into liturgical use. And it began much earlier in Eastern churches. It took a long time. It wasn't until the 11th century, so the 1000s, that the, the city of Rome begins to actually use the creed in its own divine service. And it does solidly land there, and uh, that's where Lutherans and Anglicans inherited it in the liturgical use. Now, the liturgical use was universally from the beginning, I, I believe. And you might wonder about that. So why this shift? First, you have to ask, who is this I who is stating this? It really is important to confess that the faith which we hold is the faith which God himself has revealed and which the church confesses. We want to have that be our confession of faith, but it needs to be our own. And so the I there needs to own the confession. That's what it's there doing. It's saying, I, I the Christian, I the sinner, I am the one who is confessing this truth which God has revealed through his word and which his church has handed on to me. And I want you to think for a second about how far-flung it actually is. How many groups actually confess the Nicene Creed? Well, you mentioned that the Roman Catholics do it, right? And I just mentioned that the Orthodox, the Eastern churches do it. It's also used by Methodists and Presbyterians, by Anglicans, and of course by Lutherans. It's, in fact, used by almost every Christian group except which two groups? Baptists and Pentecostals, or we might just say the broader term evangelicals. And why is that? Have you ever thought about what they don't like in the creed? One baptism. One baptism for the remission of sins. They're like, well, that's not the faith, of, is it? And we're like, yes, that's what the faith of the church has always been and remains. So 
even though they don't use it in that sense, we recognize their their church as being defective because they want to confess the one baptism for the remission of sins. We we still recognize that they're they're Christians. They here we probably need to bring up the distinction Lutherans like to use between fides qua and fides quae. I mean, fides qua, the faith that believes. So that's what joins you. The Holy Spirit works it in you and joins you in that to Jesus Christ. And does a Baptist have the faith that holds to Jesus? Well, of course they do. We're not denying that. Does, however, do they have the correct confession of the fides quae, of the faith which the church is to believe. And we say, no, their confession of the faith is definitely defective on the part of the power of the sacraments and other parts as well. But that's why the Nicene Creed doesn't actually have a piece of their heritage the way it is for everybody, all the other churches together. And that's that's important too, Todd. That, that transcends. Do you remember when uh, a few years back we had that horrible scene with the Coptic martyrs being slain on the beach, right? And people really just have some struggle about that, right? They would ask, um, well, you know, there were, well, they're Monophysites, right? They're, they don't actually confess what we confess from Chalcedon. I think what's really important for us to recognize, well, you know what, they're fellow Christians, because guess what? If you ask them what their confession of the faith was, what would they say? They would say, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. They would recite to you the creed of Nicaea and Constantinople. That was the faith for which they were being martyred, the faith for which they died. And if you just stop and think across the centuries, how many Christians have been martyred for that confession, that faith? You realize how very, very precious it is. You know, there's a passage in Proverbs 22, verse 28. It says, do not move the ancient landmark that your fathers have set. Well, the creeds are like that. They're like these ancient landmarks, which our fathers in the faith have set. And we are not to be playing with them and moving them and changing them. They are to be held inviolable. And that is what the church strives to do when it confesses the apostles, the Athanasian, and the Nicene, above all, the Nicene Creed. You mentioned that it's liturgical use, and it, it has moved around a little bit in the divine service. And in that sense, it always is a profession of faith. It's always a confession of faith, but it, sometimes its relationship to the other parts of the liturgy change a little bit over time. Yeah, I mean, you even see this even in our Lutheran service book, right? It can put the, the creed either after the sermon or before it. Either way, it's there as a sort of test, as a way to remind the people, hey, you better check out what that guy just preached to you, and it better be in accord with this holy faith of the one church, which is drawn 100% from the scriptures and which has stood the test of time. In the Orthodox liturgy in the East, it tends to come right in front of the anaphora, so the beginning of the Eucharistic liturgy, we think of it as part of the the service of the word. For them, it's the introduction to the service of the sacrament itself. In either position, though, this is the one faith. This is the unity which God gives to his people, a unity in one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. All that oneness of Ephesians 4, it's expressed in the very words of the Apostles' Creed. This is the one faith. This is what we hold to. And that's just very, very important. But with the I versus the we, the big stress is on I, the believer, need to make sure that my faith is this faith, the faith of the church, the faith of the martyrs. And this is why maybe the avoidance of the we and the liturgical use 
Do you remember the parable of the wise virgins? And what did the foolish virgins ask the wise to do? Give us some of your oil. And what did the wise say? Go buy for yourselves. Go buy for yourselves. We can't give you this. You know, it won't be enough for us and you. This is how faith is. It's the very important that each person be able to believe for themselves. You might also remember in uh, John 11, Jesus proclaimed to Martha that he was in him, his own person, the resurrection and the life. And he made the promise that the one who believes in him will never die. And he asks her, do you, singular, do you believe this? Pistoi ai stuta. And she replied, nai kirie ego pepistoika, which is kind of a weird one. It's like, yes, Lord, I have believed or I have believed. The liturgical form in the Greek begins pistoi o ais henatheon. So I believe, I believe into or in the one God, the Father who is the Almighty. So uh, I think with that as a kind of intro to the creed as a whole, it would be good to start working our way through some of the, the first article, if that's okay. Yeah, let's, let's get a start here with a few minutes before our break on one God. Very, very important because we've talked here about the three persons of the Trinity. We will to a great extent, but the first words are one God. And that is uh, really critical. I believe in one God. And when you're hearing that, the first thing that should be ringing in your head is the old Jewish creed, right? From Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, Shema Israel Adonai, Reino Adonai, Chad. Hear Israel, Yahweh our God. Yahweh is one. That's the confession. He's the one. He's the one and only. He's the one that is confessed in Isaiah 45. You know, I'm the Lord. I'm the one. There before me, there's no God. After me, there is no other. I'm the one. I, I am the real deal. But what's odd, and I think it always strikes Western Christians, is when you think of the one God, do you not start with the assumption that the Godhead itself is one and that within that one Godhead, there are three persons, right? This is the heritage of being an Augustinian thinker about the Trinity. It's it's how uh, he laid it out. How many times have our people seen that nice little diagram, right? With uh, God is there, you know, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit is not the Son. And so you can look at that little diagram and where's the principle of unity? It's all three shared together, right? And that's not how this creed runs. Not at all. And that's because the Cappadocians, paying very close attention to St. Paul and the way he spoke, began to realize that for them, I mean, this is what they were holding forth. The one God is the Father. The one, let me say it again. The one God uh, that's being confessed right here at the start is one God, the Father Almighty. And, and if that makes you uncomfortable, they're just following Paul. Listen, 1 Corinthians 8, verse 5 and 6. For although there may be many so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So, when the Cappadocians, Basil, Gregory, and Gregory, Gregory of Nazianzus and Gregory of Nyssa, when they taught about the Father, 
They said he's the source of Godhead. From the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have their beings. The Father does not come from, in any sense, the Son or the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit and the Son eternally come from the Father. And so the one God to the Cappadocians is the Father, the Almighty. And I think that remembering that, that for the East, the doctrine of the Trinity begins with the Trinity of persons, whereas for the West, it begins with the unity of one substance, explains an awful lot of the weird formulation, what sounds weird to Christians of either camp when the other talks. Pastor Will Whedon is our guest. We're beginning a weekly series on the Nicene Creed. On the other side of the break, someone supposes that this father is merely a figure of speech or a metaphor. Is that true? You can meet and hear journalists Mark and Molly Hemingway, LCMS President Matt Harrison, San Francisco Archbishop Salvatore Cordelioni, Pastor Peter Bender of the Concordia Catechetical Academy, and Kyle Mann of the Babylon Bee at the 2023 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference Friday, June 16th and Saturday, June 17th at Concordia University, Chicago. For more information, visit issuesetc.org or call 618-223-8385. This week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we dig even further into St. Luke's Gospel with Written in Heaven, Blessed Eyes and Ears, Good Samaritan, One Thing Necessary, and The Lord's Prayer. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendures.org or your favorite podcast provider. Since 1973, pro-life advocates have been gathering annually in Washington, D.C. to march for unborn life. And since the overturning of Roe v. Wade last year, this movement has taken on new direction and new focus. To learn more, pick up your copy of the January issue of The Lutheran Witness, titled Life After Roe, and learn more about what the pro-life movement is now doing to stand up for life. Visit cph.org witness or witness.lsms.org to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Not everyone is comfortable with new technology. Dial A Podcast gives all generations of your congregation an easy way to hear your sermons or even devotionals and Bible studies. Once you've completed a simple one-time setup, we take care of the rest. All your congregants have to do is dial the number from any phone to listen to your latest podcast, all at no additional cost to them. Dial A Podcast. Extend the reach of your sermons. Get started at dialapodcast.com now. Solid, serious, substantive. You're listening to Issues Etc. You may be one of those pastors who need to be refreshed and refueled because of your parish ministry. Issues Etc. regular guest, Dr. Charles Geeshan. Concordia Theological Seminary has a wonderful program, not only in continuing education during the summer, but in an advanced study program called the Doctor of Ministry. And it's a very practical program because it focuses on congregational ministry, 
It incorporates biblical theology with the ministry of the congregation. It's also very accessible for pastors, and it's also affordable. You can major in pastoral care and leadership, teaching and preaching, or mission and culture. And we pray that pastors will take advantage of this program. Learn more about the Doctorate of Ministry program at ctsfw.edu or by calling 1-800-481-2155, Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're beginning a weekly series on the Nicene Creed with Pastor Will Whedon of The Word of the Lord Endures Forever. Staying with the Father for a moment here, some Christians suppose, and this usually comes from a more kind of progressive Christianity, and they're not all hard and fast about it, but they suppose that this term Father really is simply a metaphor. It's a human metaphor to describe something that God is not essentially a Father, and we're just using a figure of speech that may be accurate, but it's nonetheless a figure of speech. How would you respond to that? Well, there are a couple things to note about it. First off, it's not just we are using. This is how God has chosen to reveal himself to us, and particularly in and through his son, Jesus Christ, who constantly speaks to us about his Father. And when he's using that, it is clear he is not speaking metaphorically. I think we may also say our fatherhood in the humanity or in any other species is actually the thing that's wobbly and fuzzy. But that's the metaphor. That's the metaphor. Human fatherhood is yes, the metaphor. Yes, the real deal, the actual father is God the Father. He's everything that we try to be by emulation, right? He's the one who is the prototype of fatherhood itself. That's why St. Paul would say in Ephesians 3, you know, from whom all fatherhood is named. Fatherhood itself in humanity, it derives its name from God himself. It stands out better in Greek where that patria and pater, I mean, you see that how tightly they are tied together um, when Paul wrote that. I also think one other thing that's worth noting here, do you remember when we, we just talked about how maybe Western Christians are a tad uncomfortable with the way this actually reads, even though it is right out of St. Paul. I remember once a proposal, I think during the time that LSB was in preparation, was floated from one of our missionaries, and he had dealt with Muslim populations, right? And what's the big thing Muslims always accuse Christians of? We're tritheists, right? We actually worship three gods. And so he wanted a different punctuation in the creed. He suggested that it read, I believe in one God, colon, and then put on equal levels the Father, God Almighty, the Father, and then the Lord Jesus Christ, and then the Holy Spirit. But this is the one God. But that, you know, I remember having a fit about it because I was like, that's not what it says. And that's not what Paul said. That's not how he spoke. And the creed is trying to reflect the very biblical language of St. Paul here, the Father as the source of the Trinity, that's the source of Godhead. And as I said before, it definitely ties in the one God. It ties into uh, uh, the Shema and Deuteronomy 6. It ties to Isaiah 45, 22, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is no other. And this God is the one that Jesus calls my father. And so the stress on father means that he's not only the very source of our being and of our lives, 
but he also kindly preserves and cares for us with the tender love of a father. In other words, there is a truth to the analogy thing. I mean, he, he is very fatherly toward us. But first and foremost, this is because he has shown himself to us in Christ to actually be our father. And so when Christ teaches us to pray, that's how he teaches us to address God. He says, when you pray, say our father, not our parent or whatever. That's very true. But here in the creed, he is in particular, we're not talking about kind of the fatherhood of God. Mm -mm. We're talking about the father of the son. The father of the son is clearly the focus of the creed as we're going to make our way through it. It'll be very, very evident. He's referred to as almighty. And some people might say that's just kind of a a throwaway or a necessary qualifier about the father. Or after all, we are talking about God. Why is it explicitly said Almighty. Yeah, I think that unfortunately the English word almighty doesn't do the job to get what pantocrat or in Greek there actually means. It has behind it the idea that he's the he's the one on the throne of the universe. He's the ruler of absolutely everything. It's more active than some passive capacity to be able to do whatever he wants, you know, because he's almighty. It includes that, but it has the idea of God actively governing all things. And why he is that is because of what's confessed in the next bit. But Pantocrator, the ruler of all that is, the, the authority over all things, is what the creed is confessing about the one God, the God who is the one in charge. So this is the image of, because it's going to say maker of all things, we can't be distracted from the fact that this is the ruler of all things. Right. Even apart from creation, he's still the ruler of all things. He's the one who's governing it all. And now we hear that he is, in fact, the one who made it all. And uh, the maker of heaven and earth. And then we bump into our first repetition in this creed and of all things visible and invisible. Well, I'll get to that in a second. So what's perhaps the most challenged part of the creed is right here in front of us, right? I don't think I would be at all wrong if I said the vast majority of people in our world today simply do not believe that there is such a thing as a creator or that they have a maker. What's the assumption? There was an inexplicable big bang or whatever. And here we are. Maybe they don't even have that. They just, they simply, they're, they're, they're cut loose and on their own. And they think of themselves as coming from themselves. I am my own master. You know, that, that's how they're thinking. And it's even obviously hugely infected the, the church itself. It started when the, the teaching of evolution began to penetrate and change trying to think where that is. Can you remember the name of that Roman Catholic retreat center over there in St. Louis, just not far from the International Center? The uh, Kendrick Center? No. no. It, it's up in that uh, residential area to the north and a little bit to the west. Oh, my goodness. it's The place slips my mind. But anyway, in the basement of that place, right, there is the most <laughs> interesting, I'll say, interesting attempt to actually portray evolution through the lens, sort of, kind of, a little bit of Genesis 1 and 2, but doing it in such a way that it's really clear that it's evolution that's running the ballgame, right? 
And so Rome has bought into this. I, I have friends in the East who have very much bought into uh, the, the idea of evolution. I mean, they all like to quote this one Russian um, uh, biologist who says that apart from evolution, biology just simply doesn't even make sense at all, which would be news to people like Mendel you know, and plenty of other thinking minds who worked on, uh, uh, on biology long before and who very firmly believed in the creator. So, I mean, it, it's huge. Basil the Great himself very explicitly teaches in his beautiful work on the Hexameron, the, the six days of creation, he teaches that when he says a day, he means 24 hours. He literally says that. You know, he says he means 24 hours. And he has this whole thing. He says, yeah, I know some people try to interpret this in such a way that, you know, a fish is anything but a fish. But, you know, for me, a fish is a fish. A dog is a dog. Oh, you know, the, I, I, I take it as it reads. And that's how he taught about the creation. Stop and think about even this, Todd. The founders of our country were largely um, deists, right? They, they believed that there was a creator. They believed that. And they believed there was some sort of an accountability to the creator. Think about how the, the, the Declaration of Independence begins. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, created, and that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. And among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We have people now that can't even, they would look at that and say, well, that's just wrong. There is no creator. And so there is no God endowed right that anybody has to anything. That's the world in which we are living. And against that, the creed just puts a big countercultural shout out to, no, what we believe in is that there is one God, the Father, who actually made everything. He's the ruler of all. And he's the maker of all, and everything is going to have to be answerable to this God. Pastor Will Whedon is our guest. He is host of the daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study produced by Lutheran Public Radio called The Word of the Lord Endures Forever. We're beginning a weekly series with him on the Nicene Creed. We'll talk a little bit more about maker of heaven and earth and all things visible and invisible next. Listen to the best of the church's music for the Epiphany season at lutheranpublicradio.org. Sacred music for the Epiphany season, 24-7. lutheranpublicradio.org. Several issues, etc. regular guests are candidates for leadership positions in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Every LCMS congregation has received nomination forms for the president and vice presidents of Synod. Please encourage your pastor and congregational leaders to fill out and return these nomination forms before February 28th of 2023. Learn more at issuesetc.org slash 2023 nominations. Issuesetc.org slash 2023 nominations. The faith once for all delivered to the saints. You're listening to Issues Etc. Metro East Lutheran High School in Edwardsville, Illinois, is looking for an English teacher with a master's degree for the 2023-24 school year. Edwardsville is 30 minutes from downtown St. Louis. The position would involve teaching upper-level, dual-credit English classes. 
For more information, send an email to Principal J. Krause, J-A-Y-K-R-A-U-S-E, at M-E-L-H-S dot org, J. Krause at M-E-L-H-S dot org. Did you know that Luther Academy has been providing continuing education for confessional Lutheran pastors and laypeople worldwide for more than 20 years? Luther Academy publishes Logia, the Confessional Lutheran Dogmatic Series, and Luther Digest. Find out more about Luther Academy and sign up to receive their free email newsletter at lutheracademy.com. lutheracademy.com and like them on Facebook, facebook.com slash lutheracademy. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. It's the beginning of our weekly series on the Nicene Creed with Pastor Will Whedon. He's author of the book Celebrating the Saints, Thank, Praise, Serve, and Obey, and See My Savior's Hands. Pastor Whedon will be leading the hymn sing at the 2023 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference Friday, June 16th and Saturday, June 17th at Concordia University, Chicago. Pastor Whedon, what can you tell us about this year's hymn sing? Well, you might guess it. I'm really excited about it. I really, really, really am. This time, the theme is from Colossians 3. Listen, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth. For you've died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. So the hymns this time are all focused on helping us set our mind on the things above. You know, there's a lot of down stuff about our world, right? All around there's darkness and there is there's sadness and there is fear. And against this, the Christian sings. We hurl the hymns of heaven against it. So we're going to be singing, The Bridegroom Soon Will Call Us. We're going to sing, Wake, Awake, For Night Is Flying, At the Name of Jesus, Jerusalem the Golden. Oh, what their joy and their glory will be. Thine the amen, ye watchers and ye holy ones. And come we that love the Lord which has that beautiful refrain at the end. We're marching to Zion, beautiful, beautiful Zion. We are marching to Zion, the beautiful city of God. So as we march along, we sing. And what we sing about is the joy of that place to which we're headed. I just am really excited about this one. You can participate in the hymn sing at our Making the Case conference, June 16th and 17th in River Forest, Illinois. Learn more about the premier conference for Christian laity at issuesetc.org or by giving us a call, 618-223-8385. I want to make some distinctions here so that we don't, in a lot of ways to counter the things that go along with something you were talking about before the break, a creation that has forgotten its creator. Mm-hmm. And one of those things is now we tend to deify the creation itself. He is the maker of all things, but he is apart from his creation. He transcends his creation while he is certainly present in his divine majesty everywhere. We can't look at the mountain and say, God's in the mountain or the mountain is God, any of those kinds of things. Right. And that is so crucial for the entire Christian worldview. It really does help set us apart. We, we, we have a very distinct line between the creator and everything that the creator makes. What he makes does not share his essence. The only time for us this gets exploded is when the creator decides to become part of his creation. 
in the womb of Mary. And then all of a sudden we can look at a piece of the creation and proclaim, this is God, this is divine. But that's very, very different from looking at the mountain and saying that beautiful mountain is God. No, the beautiful mountain may indeed confess to you something about God's majesty and glory, and it may move you deeply. That's a great thing. But in itself, it is not divine. God is beyond all that. There are times when the persons of the Trinity must be distinguished sharply from one another, as in the case of, did the Father suffer for the sins of the world? And the answer is no, that was the Son to do that. But with that said, in the act of creation are all three persons of the Trinity participants in this. While God is creator, God the Father is creator, does he exclude the Son or the Spirit? No, and the church has never taught that, doesn't think that way at all. Clearly, the Son is the instrument, if we can put it this way, through whom the Father created all things. And the Spirit himself is is created. He sends forth his Spirit and they are created and thou renewest the face of the earth. So we see clearly, and it's Psalm 104, so you see clearly that the Trinity as a whole is involved in the creation. There is an old rule that says opera ad extra indivisa sunt, uh, which means that any external work of the Trinity cannot be divvied up just between the persons of the Trinity. The external works of the Trinity invariably involve the whole Trinity. I mean, this is even going to involve in salvation. Is Christ your Redeemer? Is the Father your Redeemer? The Father is also your Redeemer, even though he doesn't suffer for you. The Holy Spirit is your Redeemer. He gives you the gift of faith. So you're going to see that the works that are external are shared between the person of the Trinity. But the Creed does teach you to ascribe creation to the Father first and foremost and redemption to the Son and sanctification to that Spirit which makes us be like himself holy. So what do we make of this maker of heaven and earth and all things visible and invisible? All right, right away you notice this is not the Nicene or the Apostles' Creed. Because the Apostles' Creed would say, you know, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Ready to move on. Said everything need to be said, right? Heaven and earth, what else can you cover? But the Nicene Creed adds visible and invisible. And this, again, is borrowing language from St. Paul, Colossians 1. For by him all things were created. This is by Jesus, all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and through him and for him. So if you think about what Paul's referring to there, it becomes really clear. The, the visible, he means all the stuff you can see. But the invisible, he's just not thinking about things that are beyond the spectrum of human sight, but about things which are fundamentally invisible. The spirits, the demons, uh, the angels, right? These we have to confess as being very much created by God, and yet at the same time, they are invisible creations. That's what, when he goes through thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, he's talking about angelic ranks. So there is a whole realm of creation unseen to us and largely, unless God wills it, inaccessible to us, but we are accessible to them. Yes. And there is an awful lot of interaction between them and us. As you're reading through the Bible, you 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 can't pull angelology out of the Bible, right? I mean, it is everywhere. And even in the story of Christ, the angels are interwoven into the story from bringing the good news to Mary and to Joseph, to the announcement of the shepherds on Christmas Eve. The angels are strengthening Jesus in his temptation in the wilderness. They strengthen him in the garden. The angels are there 
at the tomb announcing the risen Christ. They're there at the ascension. The angels are interwoven. These invisible creatures who can take on form to be seen by us, but that are essentially in themselves invisible. They are constantly interacting with us in the sacred scriptures. So I I just want to kind of go back and pick up that point you made earlier and, and really stress that. So everything in creation falls into what is created or what is not. And on the side of what is created, you've got everything, stars, sun, moon, oceans, people, demons, angels, space, time, height, length, depth, height, breadth. All that is creation. But on the other side, what is not created is God himself, the Father, and as we'll hear, his Son and his Holy Spirit. They are not part of creation in that sense. The Son, we know, will take creation into himself, but he is not eternally himself part of creation he stands with god on the other side finally with about 30 seconds what's the comfort of this first article of the creed regarding god the father well you're not the result of some impersonal force at work through you know the mysterious depths of history and time you actually are the result of a heavenly father who delights in you and wants you to be and therefore created you and he is the one who therefore gave his son that you might share his life forever and sends his spirit that you might believe that good news. It's a God who actually is intimately involved with you, a father in that true sense. Pastor Will Whedon is assistant pastor at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Hamill, Illinois, formerly served as director of worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. He's author of the book, Celebrating the Saints, Thank, Pray, Serve, and Obey, and See My Savior's Hands. And he hosts the daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study produced by Lutheran Public Radio called The Word of the Lord Endures Forever. Will, thank you. Thank you so much, Todd. In Hour 2 of Issues Etc. on this Monday afternoon, we are in John 10 with Dr. Bill Weinrich dealing with Jesus' words, I am the Good Shepherd. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc. is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio. Repentance and forgiveness, sin and grace, law and gospel, more than cliches, real preaching for real people in need of hearing the real Christ. Christ for you in the divine service at St. Paul Lutheran Church of Hamill, Illinois, where we gather every Saturday night at 6 and on the Lord's Day, Sunday mornings at 7.45 and 10. Look for the Church of the Neon Cross on I-55 between exits 30 and 33. Find us on the web, stpaullutheranchurchhamill.org. St. Paul Lutheran Church of Hamill, where there is the forgiveness of sins, life and salvation for the people of God. I am beautiful because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I am accepted because I'm a part of his family through Jesus' shed blood. Unity Lutheran School in East St. Louis, Illinois, shines the light of Christ in one of the most impoverished cities in America. Learn how to support their mission work at unityesl.org. Unityesl.org. Today, with the help of the Holy Spirit, I say yes to God in His ways.